We're in the book of Romans this morning, and we're going to read beginning in verse 16. Follow in your Bible, please. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation. To everyone that believeth, there's the condition, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it to them. The invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead. So they are without excuse. And because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were they thankful, but they became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Thank you. You may be seated. The message this morning is the destruction of a great nation, the destruction of a great nation. I felt so strongly about preaching on this that I sent out a text earlier in the week doing everything I could to get people to come this morning. I thought about calling this how America got to where she is today. How did America get to where we are right now at this moment in time. I thought about calling it how a great nation falls apart because we look around and we wonder, are we falling apart? The book of Romans chapter 1 is one of those seminal chapters in all of the Bible. There are scriptures in the Bible that are more important than other scriptures. Now, Hear me well on this. I don't want to be misunderstood. All the Scriptures in the Bible are inspired. The Bible clearly states that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So every single word of your Bible is inspired of the Holy Spirit of God. But I don't think that all Scriptures, even though they're inspired, are of the same importance reading a genealogical table in the book of 1 Chronicles that gives the names of the the, uh, children of Israel at that time in history is not as important as John 3.16, of course, that gives the plan of salvation. Equally inspired, but not necessarily equally important. And there are some chapters and passages that stand out that if you were marooned on a desert island, and you didn't have an entire Bible, but you had certain chapters, you would come to the same conclusion, having read those chapters, that you would if you were to read the entire Bible. What are those chapters? Well, I can't give you all of them, but I'll give you some, just a few. First of all, would be the first eight or ten chapters of Genesis. If you get that nailed down, brother, I'll tell you what, you're not going to get too far away from God's truth. And then there's Isaiah 
53, the great prophecy of the Messiah's atonement. And there, of course, is Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. And there would be John chapter 1 and John chapter 3 that tells us about the deity and the work and the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ in the plan of salvation. Romans chapter 8, one of the great passages in the Bible dealing with the presence of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit in our life. And I could go on and on, but sprinkled through, there are these many chapters that are pivotal, seminal, unquestionably the most important places in your Bible. Now, I would add to the list I just gave you Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 gives us a detailed explanation of what happens when men know God but willingly, intentionally turn from God. And what happens to the nation and the culture in which that happens. Now, last week I spoke to you about the three divinely appointed institutions, that there are many institutions, banks and hospitals and all kinds of institutions that man has made, but there are three divine institutions. First, the family. Secondly, the government or the state. And thirdly, the church. And you have those three institutions laid out in the Bible. The Bible gives us their roles, their purposes. It gives us their responsibilities, what they are in fact to be doing, how they are to function in the world. And God defines those roles and those responsibilities for those three institutions. Last week, I used a little slide up there to help you envision, though, what's happening, I believe, according to the Scripture. And that is that I picture our culture as a three-lane highway. I thought of this because we're going to Charleston. We're driving down the I-26 in three lanes of traffic. And, if any, and, and the three lanes represent the family, the government, and the church. Now, if anyone in those three lanes of traffic gets out of their lane, they create a wreck. And America today is experiencing a major pileup, a major wreck, because we've got a guy on the highway that's a big bully, I call him, and his name is government, it's the state. And he's driving everybody else off of the road, and we're experiencing a wreck in our culture. And you say, why are you picking on the government? Well, because the government has proven to be extremely hostile to the other institutions. The government is hostile today. The government of the United States is hostile to the family. And my evidence for that would be its attitude toward the unborn, first of all. And secondly, I would say the fact that the government of the United States has arrogantly and presumptuously redefined the institution of marriage. And nobody in all of history has been so crazy as to think that they know more about marriage than Almighty God. But the government of the United States thinks that. And so they not only are extremely hostile to the family, they're extremely hostile to the church. Do you know this week I was reading about our Christian universities and colleges, and here's what they're 
the administrators are facing now. Mandates are coming down from the federal government that you will lose all your funding and you'll lose all your privileges under the law if you don't put into your curriculum teaching about the whole LGBT gender identity movement. In other words, at a Christian college, a Christian professor now is mandated to stand up and teach that which his Bible totally and completely is in opposition to. And the threat, the club over his head, that's why I call him a big bully. The threat over his head is you'll lose all your funding. You won't even be able to operate. In fact, we may even take your accreditation from you. And so it puts them in a horrible position. So I want to take the book of Romans, this wonderful chapter, and I want to show you directly from God's Word as quickly as I can how a great nation can destroy itself. I look in verse 19 and 20, and especially in verse, um, in verse 21, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Notice there was a time when all of mankind knew God. When they knew God. When was it that all of mankind acknowledged God? Well, it certainly was in the beginning. Adam and Eve knew God more intimately, no doubt, than anybody ever in history. Because Adam and Eve, it is said, walked with the Lord in the garden in the cool of the day. Nobody else in history has ever taken a walk every day with Almighty God. Now, in what form was God? We're not told. We don't know. But we know that there was an intimate relationship, a fellowship, a walking with God that Adam and Eve experienced with the Lord every day up until they sinned, in fact. How did that happen? We don't know because God is invisible. And God has the capacity to make himself visible if he so desires. Obviously, God can do anything he wishes. But in an ordinary sense, God is invisible. So it's for you and me, it's harder to know God. I can't know God through my sight. I can't see him. I can't know him through my ears. I can't hear him. I can't touch him with my hands. I can't smell him. I can't in any way know God through my physical senses. So then, how do I know Him? I know that after Adam, uh, several centuries passed, and I know that there was this man, Noah, and God came and spoke directly to him and told him about the plans for the flood and the ark and so on. I know that after Noah, there was this man, Abraham, and God actually spoke to him directly. I know that after him was a man named Moses 400 years later, and Moses heard the voice of God so clearly and plainly that he wrote down the first five books of your Bible. Moses is the human author of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we call that the Pentateuch or the Torah. And those men had a very special relationship. They knew God in a very special way. But as time went on, God revealed himself to men, and he did it in different ways. And I want you to see in verse number 19, I want you to note the phrase, 
that it was manifest, and the word manifest has the idea of evident, there was evidence for it, in them, God showed himself to them. God showed himself to man. Now, how did he do that? He must have done it pretty well because in the mid-1990s, there was a survey done in the United States by, I think it was the Gallup Polling Fund. And that's a mere 30 years ago, just 30 years ago in America, 96% of the people said, I believe in the God of the Bible. I believe in the, in the supernatural. I believe in Almighty God, the higher power. Today, that number has fallen precipitously. It's down now to I don't know, 25% of the people even claim any religion. I mean, 25% of the people in America do not claim any type of religion. And atheism now is probably up around 12, 15%. It's more than doubled in the last 30 years and is growing at a very rapid rate. And in fact, somebody said atheism may be the fastest growing religion in America. And we can't I can't conceive of that coming from the background that I come from and, and, and being a student of history itself. But God is knowable. The people today that don't, that don't believe in God, they have to shut out the evidence for that because God is still knowable. The Bible tells us we can know God through the creation, the natural world, the universe. We can know God through reason. Reason tells me there is a God, that all this didn't just happen, that there was a designer, a power, somebody who put all of this together. It is so intri intricately interwoven and works so well when man doesn't inhibit it. Conscience, my conscience gives me a moral sense of God. Who is it that put within me the knowledge that something is morally right or morally wrong. It was God placed it there. And of course, the greatest way to know God is we know God through the Bible. He reveals himself through his written word. And greater than any of the other things, we know God through his written word, the Bible, the Scripture. Now look at verse 20. But Romans argues here that God can clearly be seen you see the phrase there in the middle of the verse, clearly seen? God can be clearly seen. God can be known by the things he has made, by his creation. If I didn't have a Bible, I think I would still believe there's a God because I would look at the, I would look at the sun, the moon, the stars. I would look at the ocean. I would look at the mountains, the trees, the animal life, and I'd say, Somebody had to design all this. This didn't just pop up out of nowhere. And it didn't begin with an unplanned cell that gradually evolved. Who was controlling the evolvement of that cell? And I would come to the conclusion there had to be a designer. Somebody's hand had to be on this. I know how chaos envelops and everything around me if somebody's not in charge of it. And you think a whole universe can come into being and there's nobody in charge? Blind, random happenings bring into being what we see around us in our universe? 
the things that he has made reveal his power. Look in verse 20. They reveal his power. Go over here and stand on the coast. Look out across the ocean and ask yourself, what kind of power was required to create the Atlantic Ocean? Boy, that, that's unfathomable. You can't even conceive of it with a human mind. And then notice it says the things he has made not only reveal his power, but it reveals his Godhead. His Godhead, of course, the Godhead is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But they're personal beings. And so it reveals God's knowledge. How much wisdom, how much knowledge, how much intelligence was required for God to create a world? The seasons, gravity, rainfall, the sun, and how it interacts with the moon and the tides and all the living creatures, tens of thousands of life forms. And all of that is happening. Somebody had to design that who knew what they were doing. And that's what the argument of the Apostle Paul is here. Now you come down to verse 20, and you'll notice something else. He talks about the invisible things of him, of God, from the time of the creation of the world are clearly seen, and we understand those things by the things that are made. Now, here's a principle, and I want you to maybe write it in your Bible because it's a very important principle, and if you'll get this, this applies to so much. We understand the invisible by the visible. We understand the invisible, things we can never see with our human eye, but we can understand them by our ability to see the visible. And let me explain it to you. I've got the power lines up there on the slide. I've never seen electricity. I've seen the result of electricity. I've seen the power plant and the great turbines turning. I have seen the sparks from uh, putting two hot wires together or a welder working somewhere, I've actually a couple of times felt electricity. And you have probably too, haven't you? I've, but I haven't seen the thing, the substance, the reality. What is electricity? And I read, and I've done a lot of research, and, and you know what? It's hard for anybody to even tell me because nobody else has ever seen it either. But I've seen its power, and I've seen its effects. I've seen how it operates very rigidly by established laws. And when people understand those laws, they can light up a room. They can cool the heat uh, from the room, or they can put the heat in the room. They can do all kinds of things. They could communicate clear across the whole universe because we understand something that we've never seen, but we understand it by the things that we have seen. I've never seen love. You can't see love. Anybody here ever seen love? No. You've seen the results of love. I've seen a mother cradle a little baby in her arms, sitting in an intensive care unit, 
so filled with love, but also so filled with fear for what might happen to that child, that woman would have given her life for that baby. I haven't seen love, but I've seen the power of love. And I've seen the effects of love. And I've never seen God, but I've seen the power of God. I've seen the effects of God's handiwork. In the book of Psalms, I read these words. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, the psalmist says, what is man? I go outside and I look up at those heavens at night, or I look across that expanse of the great plains, or I look at that national forest that I drove through last week down in, in the coast of South Carolina, or I look at the ocean itself and stand on the shore. I look up at the Alps or the Rocky Mountains, and I say, what is man? I'm nothing. My goodness, this universe is great. It is beyond our ability to even try to describe it. He says over here in chapter 9, or pardon me, chapter 19, something else about it. Listen to this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament, the sky, the expanse shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. In other words, every day that comes around, there is a speech from nature about who God is and how great He is. And every night unto night it showeth knowledge. And there's no speech or language. In other words, there's no place in the inhabited world where humans live and speak to one another where the voice of God is not heard because it's the voice of nature. The more you study creation, the more that you see the hand of God. In fact, Einstein said, and I quote him, the more I study science, the more I believe in God. The more I study science, the more I believe in God. Now, that's the outstanding scientist of the entire century. That's the man who discovered E equal MC squared and mass and much of what we know about atomic energy one of the most brilliant humans who ever lived. And the more I study science, the more I believe in God. It's funny, isn't it? Kid goes to college and takes about three science courses and comes home, declares himself or herself an atheist. But here's the most brilliant man who ever lived. The more I study science, the more I see the hand of God. Now, if ever ever in all of history, there was a nation that knew God and had reason to believe in God, it is our beloved nation, the United States of America. You think of all the hand of God upon this country in so many ways. The War of Independence, 1776, I guess. And Washington has this little army he's trying to put together, ragtag bunch of men. Some of them literally went to war and had a pitchfork. 
They had farm implements. They had squirrel rifles, 22s. The version, our equated, equation would be a 22. About 10, 12, 15,000, depending on what time you survey Washington's army. No training, just a bunch of men who wanted freedom from the British, wanted freedom to live their lives. And here's the British army, the most well-trained army in all the world at that time, an army with all the resources that you could imagine, and thousands and thousands of them. But at the end, who wins the war? The ragtag bunch of farmers and journeymen and workers and miners and so on that came together, and they won. And they won because they knew God, and they had God's hand upon their life and upon their country. A hundred years passed, and now we're divided. We have a civil war. Nothing civil about it, huh? A great war. Brother against brother. 750,000 of our fellow countrymen killed in that war. And that was on a population base. I don't know what the population was, but nothing compared to today. The percentage of people dying was oh so heavy. Whole towns of men were wiped out during that war. And by every kind of logic and reason that you can apply to it, the country should have ceased to exist. But I believe God had a plan for America. And God kept the nation together. And people believe that. They looked to God during those days. You can read the accounts of many of those soldiers. You can hear about the revivals that came to America after the Civil War. All of our great revivals happened just shortly before the war or after the war, as if God were providentially guiding the whole spiritual life of the nation for the future. And along came D.L. Moody and Finney and Sankey and, and Sam Jones and, and Chapman, and evangelist after evangelist went across this country. Millions of people came to Jesus Christ because there was this knowledge of God that the nation had. And when I think about that, I think, you know what? I, I, I encourage you to be good citizens. Shame on you if you don't register and vote in every election, from the dog catcher to the president. I mean, God's people need to be involved. But I hasten to tell you this, my friends, and that is that we're not going to solve the problems of America right now politically. The pro if every American became a rock-hard, conservative, constitutional lover, it would not solve all the problems we have right now in this country. You see, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the heart. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And today, we've turned against God. We've forgotten God. God revealed himself to America, but America has turned its back on God. Look at the end of verse 20. America is without excuse. The people that knew God and refused to recognize God, the Bible says they're without excuse. 
And so America rejected the knowledge of God. Verse 21 in your Bible, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Now, the Bible records this progression of people turning away from God that's been happening all through history. You only have to get to Genesis chapter 11, and in chapter 11, you have the account of a man named Nimrod, and he becomes a dictator. He becomes a globalist. He wants to bring the whole world together like the globalists do today. And he got them all to come to one area there, and he built a great tower, the Tower of Babel. And at that time, all the nations spoke the same language. And he's gathering the people together, and the Bible tells the account. And he builds a tower all the way up to heaven, it says. When I was a little boy going to Sunday school and attending church, I got it in my mind that they were trying to build a tower, and it said up to heaven. I thought that they were trying to build a tower so high that it disappeared into the sky, and one day somebody just stepped off of it into heaven. That's not what it's talking about. It wasn't a tower to physically take people to heaven. It was a tower up in the heavens because they were trying to worship something other than God. They had turned from God and rejected God, as it says here, when they knew God, verse 21, they no longer glorified him as God. And so they built these towers. They, they call them ziggurats. And the ziggurats were built there in that area, Mesopotamia. And on the top of them, they had a, a zodiac. And so people would go up there, and they would go through these occultic rituals. Here you have the birth of occultism. And they would go up there, and the zodiac, all the heavenly bodies were pictured. And they would worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. In other words, instead of worshiping the one who created them, they began to worship the creation itself. And you see that here. It says that. And here's the steps that they then began taking down. Now, notice this. You need to know this, Christian, to be able to discern what is happening in your world this morning. When they knew God, they first of all, first step down, they didn't glorify him as God. What does it mean to glorify God? It means to honor him. They stopped honoring God. They became irreverent. They used his name in vain. They lost respect for him. They glorified him not. They did not give him the credit for the creation that they should have given him. Step two going down, they became unthankful. They lost their sense of gratitude. And no longer did they thank God for all the good things of life. Every good and perfect gift cometh down from above. But they didn't recognize that. I was going through the list of things that are just ordinary things that we take for granted. Food, health. And after the service this morning, the first service, a gentleman comes over to me and said, you know what you didn't mention? And I said, oh, a lot. But what was it you're thinking about? He said, Air. We, don't even, we never give a thought that here is this air, this invisible thing we breathe, and it has exactly the right amount of oxygen, the right amount of nitrogen, and the right amount of all these other trace elements in it, and it's exactly what our bodies need, needed. It's almost like someone created this substance and then created us, and he knew what he was doing. <laughs> It's almost like he made air for man. 
He did, folks. Help y'all out here. It seems like we're, I'm, I'm at a little impasse here. Nobody's responding. So he did make the air for the man, by the way. And he made it in exactly the right proportions the way it's supposed to be, didn't he? But we don't ever even think about that. How many of you thank the Lord for air in the last hundred years? Oh, I got one. Amen. We became unthankful. We lost our sense of gratitude. And then notice... Their hearts were darkened. Their heart is the whole being. In other words, their whole knowledge of God began to get dim. Like a man or woman who gets away from God even today. And the reality that begins to dim. And then if you will look in verse 21, they became vain in their imagination. Now let me give you the Monroe translation of that, vain in their imagination. I would, to explain that, I would call that they became distorted in their reasoning processes. Their reasoning, their ability to reason became distorted. Look in verse 22. What's God's opinion of people who reject the knowledge of God and give credit to the creation more than they do the Creator. God calls them fools. And God takes seriously that word fools. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure why, but He says that you be careful about calling people fools in the New Testament. You remember Jesus saying that? But twice God calls people fools in the Bible. He calls them a fool here. When they knew God, they rejected Him and they professed themselves to be wise. And God says, but they were fools. And in Psalm number 14, what does God say? It is the fool who hath said in his heart, there's no God. If you're an atheist today, let me tell you God's opinion of you. You're a fool. You're a fool. To deny the reality of the Creator, God says, you're a fool. A fool is one who tries to explain the universe without any God. A fool is one who buys into the evolutionary theory that everything started as a cell and then it evolved into higher forms of life, etc., etc., and now we have a man, and we have all these other forms of life. He explains creation, if you'll study this text carefully, without God being in the picture. Oh, they boast of their wisdom and their scholarship and their intellect and their degrees and their research paper, etc. But the reality is, as God says, you're just a fool if you think you can explain the universe and leave me out of the equation. And so a nation today whose fastest growing belief system in many cases is atheism, when a nation turns to atheism, God says that's a nation of fools. You've heard of a ship of fools? Here we've got a whole nation of fools as per God. Or if COVID hadn't revealed that, 
I said the other day to a doctor, we were talking, I said, you know what? COVID has hurt your profession in a way that I hope you can get it back, but I don't know if you ever will or not. And he said, you're right, Bill. It has. You see, we know that science operates according to very strict and unchanging laws, the law of gravity, law of mag- laws of magnetism, electricity, the laws of photosynthesis, and all these very clearly defined laws that we can, we can chart those. We can write about them in science books. But when the scientists and the powers that be begin to manipulate those laws to control people politically, then we suddenly get to the point we don't know who to believe and who not to believe. We do know this, that real, true science and mathematics doesn't change. And so when people are telling us stuff on the go that's trying to control our lives, we think, wait a minute, that's not creditable. There's no integrity here now. And I could give you so many illustrations. I just don't have time for them. Climate change. The president says we're going to cut all the fossil fuels out, and we're going to be down to 50% fossil fuel use by 2030. That's only nine years away. And he says, we can't destroy the planet. I got news for the president. You're not going to get the chance to destroy the planet. Read 2 Peter chapter 3, and it talks about God's going to take that duty upon himself. The heavens are going to pass away with a great noise. You don't have to worry about man destroying it. God's got plans to do that. We teach people that their gender now is not biological, that it's in your head. That isn't science, y'all. What, I thought, what a, what a predicament I'd be in if I were an anatomy teacher. How do you teach anatomy a pure science, how do you teach anatomy in a crazy world says there are 32 genders? All the anatomy teachers need to go back to college and learn. <laughs> I mean, it really does get ridiculous after a while, doesn't it? Our leaders are so smart in America now that now we've come up with these stimulus things over and over. Now they want to pass a thing, give us another one. And one of the leading restaurants in this town closed down all of week before last because there wasn't any help. And somebody said, well, why don't you hire some help? All of our help walked out. They quit because they make more money staying home now than they do coming to work. Last week, one of our staff went to eat at a restaurant, and they sat down to be served after church. Party of six people, pretty good ticket. And the hostess came over and said, it's going to be 45 minutes before we can take your order because we don't have any kitchen help today except one guy back there trying to cook for everybody. Well, why don't you have any help? Well, because everybody's quitting. They can stay home and draw more than they can make if they work. That's our brilliant leaders. See, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And America's 
Rejection of God has caused our plunge into the moral abyss. Verse 22, the moral abyss, a full-blown apostasy, departure from God's truth. We don't need God anymore. We don't need Christianity anymore. And you'll notice the progression there. They left the knowledge of God, became vain in their reasoning, and then they became idolaters. They began to worship the creation, the creature, more than they did the God who created. That's in verse 23 and verse 25. And let me show you the result of that. Look in verse 24. The result of rejecting God and His truth by nation is that in verse 24, God gave them up. Isn't it a tragic thing when you read that God gave up on somebody? God threw up His hands. His patience was exhausted. He gave them up. Literally, that handed them over. And what did he hand them over to? Look in verse 24. He gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own bodies. He gave them up to moral corruption. How would you describe America today other than morally corrupt? Lust, sex, sensuality, pornography, controlling so much of the national agenda today. Then you go down to verse 26. He gave them up to vile affection. Vile affection is the term the Bible uses. What is it? It's described in verse 26. For this cause God gave them up to vile affection. Even the women changed the natural use of their bodies into that which is against nature, lesbianism. In verse 27, likewise the men, leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet homosexuality. It's not a gen... Listen to me, and especially if you're younger. The younger generation doesn't want to deal with this. They want to deny what God says. Oh, if you, love, if you love somebody, you ought to be able to marry him. Was that your brother? Is that your, can a child marry a parent if they love them? <laughs> I mean, that leads to all kinds of illogical craziness in a society when we start thinking about marrying are changing the use of sexuality. So, so it's not because of my age that I feel like I do about homosexuality. It's because of God's Word that I feel that way. And then in verse 28, God gave them up to a reprobate mind. What does reprobate mean? Not a word we use very often. A reprobate mind The idea here of reprobation is you reach a level of moral corruption that God has to deal with it. You reach a degree of moral corruption to where God says, I have to do something about it. My patience is exhausted. And then if you will begin there in verse 29, there's a whole catalog of sin. And I don't have time to read them all, 
almost every kind of sin, every type of sin you can think about is listed there in that list. And they're the results of God turning a nation over to its own lust. God's simply saying, you know what? I've reached the point where I've had it with you. Do whatever you want to do. Do whatever you want to do. But your sin will become your own punishment. It will become its own punishment. You will reach such a depth of depravity, your culture will completely fall apart. You won't even be able to function anymore as, as a people. This is America, filled with vile affection, reprobation, lawlessness. Now, let me tell you what I want you to do. I want you to go back to verse 18 now, the beginning of the text. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. What is ungodliness? Ungodliness are offenses against God. When I sin vertically against God, that is ungodliness. A godly person is a person who pleases God. The wrath of God is directed here, it says, toward all ungodliness, all offenses against God, and he continues against all unrighteousness. That sins against other people. A righteous person treats other people in the way he or she wants to live, and they don't sin against others. So God's wrath here is really God's attitude towards sin. And what is his attitude towards sin? Verse number 18, God's wrath is directed against all sins against him and sins against other human beings. And the result is found in Psalm number 7, verse number 11. God is angry with the wicked every day. It's a continuous anger. It's also found in chapter 9 of the Psalms. In verse number 17, the wicked will be turned into hell. And listen to this, all the nations, nations that forget God. All the nations that forget God. America today has put herself, she's put a target on her back for the wrath of God to be directed directly at her. Because of her unrighteousness and her ungodliness, her rejection of the Almighty and her willingness to accept man's humanistic theories and the consequence of it, we're living it out. And when you watch the news and you put Romans 1 in your other hand and you turn on your newscast, you're seeing the fulfillment of Romans 1. doesn't have to be like that. You know, God sent a prophet to Nineveh, the greatest city in the world at that time. He said, you're going to perish if you don't repent. And they repented. And you know what? God withheld his wrath. If America would turn to God, if America would truly repent as they did in Nineveh, God would withhold his judgment. And so we pray, 
We pray from 2 Chronicles 7, 14, if thy people which are called by thy name would just humble themselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from their wicked ways, then he would hear us from heaven and he would hear our prayer and he would forgive our sins. I'm not in despair. It's a very solemn thought I'm preaching but do you know what? I also have read verse 16 of that chapter. And the gospel is the power of God that saves people and changes people. And so I have experienced that change. And whatever God may send, God's people will be okay. He holds us in his hand. We'll make it. But today, I weep for my country. I weep for America. She's forgotten God. Stand to your feet with me, if you will, please.